I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. We are on a summer break as we work to bring you another exciting season this fall. So for the next few weeks, we're sharing some of our favorite sessions from the June 2021 BioDigital Conference. Today, check out our episode, Breaking Barriers in Trade, a conversation with Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Ilala, Director General of the World Trade Organization. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Ilala, the Director General of the World Trade Organization. Dr. Ngozi kindly set aside some time to speak with us this morning at BioDigital. And this is a very timely conversation. The biotechnology sector is at the center of the fight against COVID-19. The WTO oversees our global trading system, working to create a level playing field for global competition and rules that facilitate $25 trillion in the trade of goods and services. While much of the current discussion involves the nation's access to COVID vaccines and treatments, the WTO is also extremely relevant to other biotechnologies, such as those critical for the advancement in agriculture and environmental sustainability. And that's why I'm so excited that Dr. Ngozi is here with us. By discussing and sharing priorities and goals, our sector and the WTO can build a relationship that will benefit people in all corners of the world at this critical moment in history. So with that, let me get to my first question. First, I want folks to know you better, Dr. Ngozi, and thank you so much for being with us here today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Michelle. So on March 1st, you became the first woman and the first African to serve as the WTO Director General. Can you tell us how your new role connects with your long and distinguished career across politics, economics, and international development? And why did you want this role and why now? Well, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you and all the people in bio. I think um, the role now is about public service. That's uh, what most of my life has been about. That's the way I was brought up. Um, my parents told us that education is a privilege that, and it should be used to serve other people. So once when I started my career, I went into development uh, at, at the World Bank. And um, from there, I went to serve my, my country as a finance and foreign affairs minister, the longest serving finance minister. And, uh, and then, you know, so it's been a mixture of international and national service. I was the chair of Gavi for the Global Vaccine Alliance for five years. Uh, again, trying to give back even at, uh, uh, in the health sector. So this role just fits in with that uh, thinking that I want to be doing things that serve people. And you can do it at all levels. You can do it at the grassroots level, at the national level, big policy-wise issues, and also at the global level. And so when the WTO uh, job came up and my country nominated me, I competed for it. I thought the WTO is so significant, particularly for the developing countries. This is where the multilateral trading system rests. And uh, it, the multilateral trading system guarantees us stability, predictability in trade, fair rules, level playing ground, all that. And that's what countries really need. And so I found a WTO that has many challenges, 
but think it's worthwhile just rebranding, re, 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 rejuvenating the organization and making it work for people as it should. Mm. So what do you think some of the biggest challenges are facing our world trading system and how can the WTO really influence them going forward? Well, let, let me start with what I think is the biggest challenge now facing our trading system. That is the relevance of trade to solving the biggest problem of our time, uh, the most urgent problem because we have climate change, but the pandemic is with us now and it's about lives. So I think that um, uh, trade, the role of trade in bringing solutions to the pandemic is, is paramount and the WTO's role in that is very important. And I actually campaigned partly when I was looking for this job on the basis that trade needs to do more. But first, let me start by saying that trade has helped and therefore the WTO rules that underpin it. You know, 75% of world trade is still done on MFN, most favored nation basis on the rules of the WTO. And uh, whereas trade shrank last year, 7% in, in value terms, trade in medical supplies and equipment actually rose 16%. Trade in personal protective equipment rose 50%. So I'm just saying the trading system with the rules that underpin it made things go around. After the initial disruption in supply chains, the system showed resilience and began to work. Now it can do so much more and uh, on the pandemic. And I've talked about three ways. I'll be very quick because there's one more point I want to make. For the pandemic, I think one, uh, the WTO members and WTO should look at how to lower export restrictions and prohibitions so that supply chains can work. We started the pandemic with 109 uh, restrictions and prohibitions. We are down to 53 now, but that's still too many. If we want supply chains for up to move outputs or supply chains to bring raw materials, you know all about that, to, to manufacturers, we need to get these rules uh, going. So that's one place. The other is we're thinking of doing voluntary monitoring of supply chains in some way with manufacturers. Where are the bottlenecks, the raw materials, where, where are the problems that we as WTO can help unlock that? Uh, and, and because we know manufacturers, we're asking them to increase capacity for vaccine manufacture, for other uh, medical supplies. Uh, so we can help work with them to do that. And finally, WTO, you know, there's a, a, a um, debate raging now on the issue of intellectual property. Of course, you know, the whole industry knows. And uh, it's here at the WTO with our TRIPS agreement that that is centered. And so uh, the issues of transfer of technology and know-how and the IP is very, very important. And the debate going on, uh, what we need is to come up with a pragmatic solution that um, whilst allowing developing countries access also incentivizes research and innovation. So I hope we will get there. Then finally, the, another problem of our time is seeming protectionism, uh, which arises from uh, you know, people, politicians, uh, the feeling that uh, the global system or globalization doesn't work for them anymore. And, uh, this inward-looking sets of policies uh, are coming in. So that's the, due to the fact, I think, that uh, globalization helped lift hundreds of millions out of poverty. 
but it also left some people behind. There are poor people in rich countries and poor countries who are not integrated into the system. So all this, you know, leads to kinds of uh, nationalism, populism, protectionist uh, uh, behavior. Uh, hopefully, we that will not hold sway. But we need to think of ways that trade, the trading system can help overcome it by reintegrating those parts of the world that have not been really integrated into globalization, by looking at those marginalized, even within rich countries, and trying to get micro, medium, and small enterprises, women, you know, those marginalized onto national and global supply chains. So these are some of the areas, uh, you know, I think trade can be quite instrumental. Well, you've laid out a very ambitious agenda there. Maybe we can dig into some of those key issues a little bit more. Now, you talked about export restrictions. Did the WTO see an increase in export restrictions during the pandemic? And if so, why? And how are you convincing countries to roll those back? Well, yes, you know, export restrictions were 109 total from all our members, including about 15 restrictions on food. So it wasn't only medical supplies. Um, the reason I think is when the pandemic uh, started, people everywhere panicked. I remember I was in the United States and the grocery stores, people, there was a run. You couldn't find the tissue paper, you couldn't find all sorts of basic goods disappeared. Everybody went into hoarding behavior, the same at national level. Uh, governments put restrictions on exports so they could reserve the supplies for themselves because nobody knew what was going to happen. Ditto for food. I'm happy to tell you that on the food side, the system uh, has been resilient. 14 of the 15 restrictions have gone so that food import dependent countries can get food. And then on the, on the medical supply side, as I said, we've, we've gone down to about 53 uh, uh, restrictions. The WTO rules allow countries in exceptional circumstances to have these res uh, restrictions and prohibitions, but they have to be declared. That is transparent, notified, temporary, and proportionate to the situation, meaning they shouldn't be there uh, uh, for long. So I think the, it was the fear. And now that um, that fear is dissipating, supply chains are beginning to work again. You know, we're telling members to do away with them so supply chains can work even better. So that leads to your second agenda item, which is strengthening the supply chains. And we've seen, for example, in the COVID mRNA vaccine, very, very complex supply chains with over 200 components from over 30 countries. So the supply chain vulnerability, is this something that's really impacting our response to COVID globally? Well, the complexity of supply chains uh, just shows you uh, how globalization in a way, you know, has linked countries and production sites uh, to, together. Of course, it, it, in some ways, um, I think it's a good thing uh, because um, I think under normal circumstances, having these supply chains drawing in so many sites, so many countries, into production is a good thing. You're creating jobs everywhere. You're making goods flow. And uh, companies can do just in time uh, a kind of approach to their goods and services. But uh, I think in the pandemic, some governments saw that as a vulnerability because some supply chains were concentrated. 
uh, in certain parts of the world. Uh, medical, I don't think people realize the extent to which uh, materials and supplies in the medical uh, field, for example, were concentrated in Asia. And when that came, uh, it was a revelation and, and countries thought this is a vulnerability. And of course, there is a move to do some insuring. But I, I don't think you've just mount, you've just uh, demonstrated the, the complexity. No matter what we do, I think we're still going to have these intricate supply chains because they are now built into the way we function globally. It seems like there are two responses to finding out about that concentration in Asia. One is to ensure into your individual country. And the other is to further diversify so that more countries and more regions are involved in all of these key supply chains. Is that is that what you're trying to build through WTO? Yeah, I think it's not that we are consciously. Uh, <laughs> it's not that we are consciously saying that, but we also find that. Um, Companies are doing that to, to manage their risk. Uh, they are diversifying into other countries within the same region, uh, some of them to other regions, but they're not bringing all the supply chains home as policymakers think that they would do. They're just managing their risk. And I think it's a good thing. I'll tell you one thing that is, is of importance though, um, is the manufacture of vaccines. It's, 80% of exports come from 10 countries, even though they have these very diverse supply chains, but the actual manufacturing itself, 80%. And we've seen that that also has some risks because politics can trump the market. Uh, and, and so when people are dying in your country, even though there's demand elsewhere, and you might even make more money by selling those goods outside, you keep them in because politically you cannot defend that you send goods somewhere when the people in your country need it. For that reason, we've seen a vulnerability with respect to concentration of manufacture of some of these products. And for that, yes, we are advocating now that with respect to vaccines and some other medical supplies, we should decentralize production for the world. We should have more production in emerging markets in different parts of the world and in developing countries. For instance, Michelle, you know, Africa with 1.3 billion people imports 90% of its pharmaceuticals and 99% of its vaccines. So during this pandemic, they've been really hit. And that's where this vaccine inequity comes in. So now people, policymakers are waking up and saying, no, we have to manage that risk for the future and bring in some production into the continent. So what are the long-term solutions to this? How do we make more regions more medically independent in their trade? You had an amazing op-ed in the Washington Post recently with the head of the WHO and the World Bank and IMF really talking about some of the possibilities and you've proposed a, a third way. Can, can you speak to that third way vision? Well, let me, um, third way was something I was, I did in an early article in Foreign Affairs, what has carried through to what you said, which is that, um, you know, as this discussion on IP is raging, we should look at what it takes to really manage the pandemic. And, and IP is one component, but there are several other components that if you get the IP and you don't have them, you still can't manufacture. But I think the main point we are trying to make in that article uh, the, that we all got together to do the international institutions is that preparedness 
and resilience is important. And we have to learn the lesson that we of preparedness because this pandemic is not the last. I mean, those scientists are predicting that, you know, more are on the way. So we're saying two things. One, we need to spend money now, kind of surge capacity to try and vaccinate the world. $50 billion is what the IMF calculated. If we can vaccinate people in developing countries up to 40% this year and 60% next year, it will cost $50 billion. And, and then we will be able, global GDP will rise by $9 trillion. 40% of which would flow to developed countries, the remaining to developing and emerging markets. Developed countries alone would raise $1 trillion more in taxes out of this increase in, in output and production. So it is the rate of return cannot even, is, is, is amazing. So why wouldn't we spend 50 billion to save trillions down the line? That's the point we are making. We have to do it now. But beyond that, in another place, we've argued unpreparedness. The world was singularly unprepared for this pandemic. And so for the next one, we have to look at several issues. Surveillance. I don't think that surveillance of diseases in the world was up to par. Uh, you need, we need to, to make sure that we set aside money globally to pay for that for the future and, and have the respective national governments also uh, take on responsibility. But it costs money. So the world will have to finance it. Uh, and then it, it, it response, where if something does happen, we need what surge capacity to deal with the problem. That didn't really happen in a good way in this pandemic. It came too late after many people had lost their lives. So we need to set aside money for that. Um, so pandemic response, preparedness and resilience after, we need to find global uh, governance systems that make sure the world is resilient against this. And all that will cost some money. So those are some of the lessons that we're talking about. And this issue of the third way, coming back to that, just finally, is the fact that really to get medical supplies and equipment, particularly vaccines, we need to look at manufacturing capacity. We talked about it before. <clears throat> there are many places in the world that have uh, unused capacity, of course, you'd have to invest and it would take six to nine months, but still we could mobilize that to produce more because it's supply scarcity that is the problem. You, you need supply chains to work, like we talked about before. Uh, and all those ingredients come in. If you don't have them, you also are not going to be able to work. Transfer of technology. Even if you get IP, you need the transfer of technology with that uh, for vaccines in particular. So all these ingredients. So I was saying, don't just focus on IP. Let us look at the other things we can do to improve the manufacture of these vaccines and, and increase uh, global supplies. Well, we, we all agree that it must. it's so critical that we get vaccines to every corner of the world. We can't leave pockets of the world. In fact, large corners of the world with 2% rates of COVID vaccination. It's, it's critical that we get it to everyone. And you're also making the case that it makes sound business case, it makes sound policy case to invest now to make yes. sure everyone gets vaccinated. Yeah. So, you know, 
this isn't the only area where the WTO is playing a leading role. You're also very much involved in climate change and sustainability. And we're already seeing a tremendous amount of progress when it comes to developing solutions to climate change and improving environmental sustainability. And we expect more in the years to come. We understand that there's a growing interest in the WTO to ensure open markets and fair rules for exchange of these products. How do you see the WTO's role in addressing climate and sustainability? Well, I see it uh, as very as key. Actually, Michelle, I want to tell you what the purpose of WTO, when it was uh, founded from GATT in 1995, the purpose in the agreement said it would be about enhancing living standards, creating employment, and supporting sustainable development. So sustainability is written into the DNA of the, of the WTO. So with respect to climate change and environment, I think there's really several roles that the trade and the WTO can play. First, we just on biodiversity itself of our oceans, you know, and sustainability of our oceans. We're negotiating a fishery subsidies agreement to do away with harmful subsidies, which are estimated at $35 billion globally. So if we can do away with that, that helps our fish stocks, that helps our oceans, and that helps the livelihood, especially of poorer fishermen and women. You know, so that's one thing. It's been going on for 20 years. We haven't, there hasn't been agreement. So I came here, this is my, I'm going into my fourth month and I'm saying 20 years is enough. If this is really about sustainability, we need to get that done. But once we get it done, it's contributing to sustainable development goals 14.6. That's one. Then you come to the issue of climate. I think that incentivizing trade in climate friendly uh, goods and services, those that are low in terms of uh, low in, in carbon emissions is a very good thing. And so some negotiations were started a few years ago in that regard, and we want to renew those negotiations uh, you to see how we can incentivize trade in renewables, for instance, uh, minimize or, or uh, disincentivize trade in fossil fuels because of the high carbon emissions. These are things we are looking at. Of course, if we had a global carbon price, it would help, but, but we don't. And so some of those mechanisms are things that, you know, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, we're looking at all of that because our members, some of them are talking of adopting this and we need to make sure they're com compatible with WTO rules. So a lot of stuff. We also, members are also uh, discussing the issue of plastics and 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 uh, how to also remove that from our environment. So there are a lot of exciting things that are going on at the moment. A lot of bio members are working on packaging alternatives um, for plastic. So it's music to their ears to hear your focus on that. You know, agriculture is another area of great interest to our members and it's one that's threatened by climate change but also where scientific advancements are creating the potential for more resilient and adaptable crops and products. I, I love the vision of being able to micro-engineer crops that are going to be more nutritious, more appealing, and more easily grown close to neighborhoods in need. Nonetheless, there's been many high-profile trade disputes involving the regulatory treatment of agricultural biotechnology that remain 
largely unresolved. And it's, it's mm. my sense that we deploy these new technologies to address climate, new trade issues will emerge as well unless countries find a way to really work past these existing disputes and acknowledge mm. that we have to avoid uh, erecting barriers that are not science-based. How does WTO view the role of, of science-driven agriculture and what role it plays in trade? Well, um, of course, uh, agriculture and land use are very critical as uh, contributing to carbon emissions in, in very many ways. I, if I remember my numbers correctly, both agriculture and land use contribute up to 34% of carbon emissions. So finding climate-friendly ways uh, to feed the population, uh, as you say, science-based approaches is, is, is um, uh, welcome. But I, I have to tell you this, among the membership, there are diverse feelings on this particular issue. There are members who uh, view these products uh, because of the culture and taste of their populations. Uh, introducing these engineered crops is not always accepted. And that is why some of them erect some of these uh, technical barriers to trade and so on. We would like to see, of course, we don't like those barriers and we would like to see them come down. But these are things that have to be uh, negotiated within the WTO to make sure that uh, these uh, conform and, and uh, are not um, creating barriers for members. We, many members from developing countries also uh, look at these issues of technical barriers to trade linked to the type of agriculture as maybe pre sometimes preventing them from integrating into the world markets. So bottom line is we need to work out a way that uh, our science can be in, in sync with our culture and our tastes and, and uh, the fears that people have for engineered crops. And agriculture is one of the most difficult areas to negotiate at the WTO. So I don't have very big promises in that area that will come to some conclusion soon, uh, but it's a work in progress. But it's a very good challenge to us as an industry of how we can make the science more in sync with culture. I think that's, that's such an important part and it's a thread that runs through um, all of our conversation, you know, along the lines of what we can do to be better partners and to, you know, serve the global patient base and consumer base better. I'm curious to get your role, your view of the role the industry's really been playing in ensuring global access to COVID vaccines and treatments. What can biotech be doing more of to help you fashion a solution and help deliver that solution? Well, let me say that uh, it's uh, been a fabulous role that the industry has played in some senses. I mean, everyone says it, never have we seen this speed uh, in the development of uh, technology of vaccines. No one believed that in a year we could come up. Today we got the news that Novavax is 90% uh, effective and will join the group. Moderna, a company that never produced vaccines before. Uh, so it's in a way a miracle given the time it used to take to develop. So industry has already done a lot in that way. And we're full of praise and admiration for having these products that we can move around through trade. But I think there are other areas where industry could step up. Uh, on this issue of inequity of access to medical goods and supplies, you know, this is now a big cry around the world. 
And as you said, Michelle, it's not really acceptable on two fronts. One is on the human front that, you know, people are dying elsewhere and you have the technology to save them. Uh, on, on the other front is that economically, I'm an economist, doesn't make any sense because if you don't work to vaccinate those people, the variants are mutating all the time and it's going to come back and haunt you. So, but I feel industry could have stepped up faster with the voluntary licensing agreements. I, I'm sure if industry had put up his hand, as I say, you know, and said, look, I'm ready to do these voluntary agreements in as many places as possible. I know it's easier said than done, but I think industry could have done more. You know, we did have some companies licensing voluntarily very quickly. AstraZeneca did that, I think J&J. But I think if all had stepped up to the plate, we would have less noise now and uh, maybe have been able to manage it. So that's one area I think industry should have done more, could have done more, that maybe this whole IP debate may not even have uh, uh, heated up the way uh, it is. So, um, and then for the future, um, I, I just think that industry needs to think about uh, how it's going to handle, because we're going to have an innovation new things coming on. I'm one of the people who believe strongly in incentivizing uh, research and development. If we don't, we wouldn't have this kind of miracle we had with the drugs. But by the same token, industry now has to think, how do we respond with this in the event of another catastrophe? How do, what is that, what is, what's the bottom line of how we deal with people? Because the world will no longer tolerate you know, some people dying whilst other people uh, have access. I can tell you one thing. There were also some deals that were non-transparent. There are poor countries who paid more than rich countries for some vaccines and other medical products. And that's not fair. So I think industry needs to lift the veil of opaqueness in the contracts that they make. They need to be fair. There's a feeling they were not fair. And I know that I was one of the founders of COVAX. And we tried for so long to get agreements with some companies. You know, things were really opaque. So that's another thing industry can do better. Better transparency uh, on pricing, on contracts, so that we can get a level playing field when it comes to saving lives. Well, that's a very powerful charge. And just want to, on a related note, wrap up to find out what are your final words for our listeners and our industry? Our, our scientists, as you say, are producing amazing innovations, not just in healthcare, but also in agriculture and environmental biotechnology. But moving forward, how can we best direct our energy across all of those sectors to help you realize your vision for WTO? Because I think it's the vision for a more powerful globe. The, thank you, Michelle. The vision for a more powerful multilateralism, because we've seen that when you have issues of the global commons, like the pandemic, climate change, you need everyone, you need multilateral uh, systems to solve them. And that's where an organization like the WTO comes in. So the issue is what partnership can we have with, uh, with industry? You know, there are some people who feel, oh, don't talk to industry, you know. Uh, especially pharma, you know, I got attacked <laughs> because I had a meeting with pharmaceutical companies. But I, I think you have to talk to them. At the end of the day, they're the ones manufacturing this product. It's not someone else. So the, my word to, to the industries, look, you've done miracles. 
you know, we are full of admiration, but we need to partner with you more. We need to figure out upfront now, how do we work better together so we can help you with your supply chain issues? This is where the WTO has some power to do something, help you with your supply chains. At the same time, you work with us to make sure goods and services, uh, medical goods and services can move around so that people in poor countries can get them same as those in rich countries. So partnership, we would like to talk to you more. We'd like to partner with you more and figure out how to serve the world better. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Ngozi. That's a very powerful charge. More partnerships and more transparency. I think that's a place where bio can help and where our members are really willing to step up um, and work with you. We're incredibly grateful to you for making time for this conversation. We know that you are in the midst of many important battles right now. So we think it's critically wonderful and important that you came to join us. We look forward to working with you and really finding some great practical solutions in the months and years to come. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to I Am Bio. We will be back in September with a brand new season.